Well, let me add my welcome to that of others. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors around here, and it's great to be with you, to be worshiping with you today. We welcome you uh, to worship God with us. And we're in the midst of a sermon series this fall that's carrying us through the first four chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, we're going to run this up through the beginning of Advent and kind of take a break for Advent. And then next year in the spring uh, semester, we'll do chapters five through eight of Paul's letter to the Romans. So kind of focusing on Romans for the whole program year. And uh, we're going to look at a a passage in just a few um, minutes, uh, Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26. But just to, to get us up to speed, to be able to hear what Paul's writing in that passage. Let's, let's review quickly. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. He introduced himself in a way that was rather compelling. Then he stated the main point of this letter, uh, really the, the main point of the gospel, really that, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Meaning not only that God is righteous and, and kind of perfectly unbroken, but that Uh, By grace and through faith in Jesus, God makes us righteous just like Jesus is. So it's that that God's righteousness for us has been revealed in the gospel. It's a central theme of this whole letter. And then Paul starts unpacking that in more detail and he he dives into this section where he takes two whole chapters, from the middle of chapter one to the middle of chapter three in just kind of retelling how bad the bad news of sin really is. And, and it's bad. It's, it's really rough. Um, a, a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson gave a talk on Romans that I, I was uh, directed to by a friend, and he shares a story in that talk about this passage of Scripture halfway through chapter 1 to halfway through chapter 3. Evidently, a number of years ago, a group of British uh, university students simply took that text of scripture and made a little pamphlet to hand out to their fellow students and they began distributing that around campus and it caused such an uproar on campus that that student group was called before the university senators and in the UK it's not uh, it's not a student senate that the university senate are the leading faculty members and these leading faculty members uh, were, were so offended by this passage that they demanded the student group uh, appear before them and bring with them the author of this offensive text. <laughs> to which Ferguson concludes, this says a tremendous amount about A, the ignorance of intellectuals, and B, more importantly, the power of the message the power of how bad the bad news is. It is a devastating message without exception. Every human being everywhere, sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. If you weren't here last week, you really need to go online or into our church app to listen to Pastor Jordan's sermon. I told her this too. I thought it was a little masterpiece of a message on the Apostle Paul's conclusion that sin has universal reign in every human heart everywhere. The bad news is really bad. And at at this section in Romans, I mean, the outlook is just so bleak. It's kind of like, oh my goodness. We we as a congregation have spent four weeks in this and we're kind of like, oh man, come on. And look at the text from last week again. None is righteous, no one. 
Not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Woof. Then comes the passage we'll read today. One commentator said of it, it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. He meant by anyone, anywhere, at any time. I mean, from the hopelessness of, of that deep gorge of sin, remember that from last week, where we're pinned by that 800-pound boulder with no possibility of escape, from that place of complete resignation, you know, no more wishful thinking about human beings being not that bad. No more avoiding the issue of our own proclivity towards darkness. No more denial. Just utter brokenness. An unmitigated despair. And certain death. From that place we hear the two most gracious words a person could ever imagine. But now. Let's listen to the scripture. It's a little bit of pressure to be reading the most important paragraph. I'm honored. Um, The scripture is from Romans 3, Uh, Starting at verse 21, if you want to follow along, it's on page 913. It's pretty short, though, so I just ask that you listen. Hear the word of the Lord. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, Amy. (laughs) But now, and the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light Against the dark sky of human depravity, a great light has dawned. A new day is here. A new day is here. I mean, Paul took pains to help us understand the depth of sin, the seriousness of sin, the universal reign of sin. He took pains to help us to understand that, that the wages of sin is not just a bad day or a negative psychological experience. The wages of sin is death physical and spiritual death. But now, from that place where we were stuck and couldn't do anything about it, but now. I mean, those two words, 
divide all time into two sections, then and now. Then we were lost and didn't know it. We were blind, yet pressing forward at breakneck speed. We were deaf to every spiritual alarm, unable to speak spiritually uh, uh, speaking, even if we had something to say, and in fact, spiritually dead, wholly incapable of helping ourselves. Then, and left to our own devices for making ourselves presentable to God, a hopeless endeavor. Then, left to pay a crushing debt while we're spiritually penniless. Left to touch the stars even though the peak of Everest was the closest we could get. Then, hopeless. But now, now, in Christ, we have been found by God. The blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the dead are raised to life. It's good news. Now we set aside all attempts to make ourselves presentable to God as the hopeless projects they are and simply receive the righteousness given by God's grace through faith in Jesus as the gift that it is. All that flows right out of the passage we read today. Nobody's making that up. Jesus died our death, paid our debt, purchased our freedom, satisfied God's wrath against us, declared us righteous in God's sight so that we now stand before God with new legal status. The legal status in God's eyes of being perfectly unbroken and in no need of repair. Now, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It says the Bible, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The founding verse of Hope College, by the way. Then we had no hope. Now we have hope. I mean, friends, spiritually do this. Breathe it in. I mean, it's warm, sweet summer air spiritually. A new day has dawned and God wants us to live in that new day. Then is past. Now is here for real. This isn't just wishful thinking. When the apostle Paul had to summarize the gospel in a line, he wrote, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. He was answering the question, why is the gospel the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? Why is it so? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. He comes back to that same theme today after hammering just how dark the darkness is. But now, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Run that through the Bible decoder ring and you get all of scripture points to this. All of the Old Testament points to this this new day when God's righteousness would be revealed. And, And just as the bad news is bad news for everyone everywhere, so the good news is good news for everyone everywhere. Because there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the big problem. Back, back to that same Sinclair Ferguson talk I referenced earlier. He makes the point in there that, that you and I might state the problem differently. For all have sinned and you know, John, John has sinned and John falls short of the law of God. Because think about it, isn't that really the standard by which we're to live? Isn't that the primary purpose of God's law to reveal to us our brokenness, thus become a tool in the Spirit's hands of convicting us of sin? I mean, yeah, that, that's one of the primary functions of God's law. But the real tragedy is not that we just fail to do what we're supposed to. The real tragedy, the human tragedy and the tragedy in the world is that we fall short of the glory of God because every human being was created bearing God's image, designed from the very beginning to enjoy and reflect God's glory, to live in this goodness as creatures in the world God has made. We perverted that most fundamental purpose And the result is that ever since we've found ourselves chasing after much lesser things, really rather silly things, ultimately, that just don't matter when compared to the glory of the one who created everything, including you and me, who's sustaining us right now. And just as all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, all are justified freely by his grace all fall short, all are welcomed by God, invited to this being made right process again, offered us in Jesus. This is the gospel, and this is the good news. This is the big deal about Christianity. And Paul uses three words in this little passage today that really get to the heart of why this is the most important paragraph ever written. One's a legal word, one's a business word, And one's a relational word. The legal word, justification. This was a word in in ancient times used in courts of law. It referred to the declaration of a judge. Our text says all are justified freely by his grace. What that means is that by God's grace and through faith in Jesus, God declares us to be perfectly unbroken as as if nothing ever went wrong. I mean, we, we get a new legal standing. It's kind of uh, uh, similar to the reason we celebrate when any of our, our refugee friends who, who, who we've, we've welcomed to, to the States and to our, our city and, and our, our family here, when they receive, uh, receive the status of U.S. citizenship. You know, we have a big party. We show celebration pictures. They have a new legal standing Something is different. They're the same people, but they have legal standing in a different way. You know, the Bible in another place speaks of our citizenship being in heaven. That's because we have new legal standing before God. We have been justified, made righteous by grace and through faith. So this first thing that Jesus has done, 
a legal standing that's new to us. And that justification happens through the word that's the business word, redemption. That was a word that would call to mind the slave trade in the ancient world. And redemption happened when a person came with enough money to purchase a slave for the sole purpose of setting that slave free. When a person did that, they became that slave's redeemer. They literally purchased them and then let them go. So many themes in scripture come to mind. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. The reason he paid the price that he did was so that we might be free. Jesus has redeemed us, purchased us back. This is an incredible thing. This is God's great loving buyback strategy. See, someone redeems us when they they pay a price commensurate with the crime. But more on that in a little bit. And, And finally, the last word is propitiation. Now, I know that that didn't appear in the text that we read. The the way it's translated in the NIV is God presented Christ, quote, a sacrifice of atonement. And every once in a while, it's good to compare kind of Bible translations to see what, what the root is. The English Standard Version is typically a more literal rendering of the Greek. And in that case, it's, it's helpful here. Look at the passage in the ESV. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the first thing this more literal translation gets the linkages that are very evident in the Greek. It moves from this to this to this. That's very clear in the original language. Now you might be thinking, I don't even know what a propitiation is. What does that even mean? I know that's what I thought the first time I saw it. To propitiate someone means to appease their anger. And at first glance, this idea that God gets angry and needs to be appeased might seem somehow contradictory to what we know about Jesus and God's grace and God's mercy. It feels more like some kind of ancient pagan God who needs to be bribed with vegetables or you know, an animal sacrifice or in the ancient world, even a human sacrifice. But the idea of Jesus appeasing God's anger makes perfect sense when we understand what the Bible says about God's anger or God's wrath. And, and even Christians get amazingly twitchy when we start talking about these things, but it's very biblical and we need to. I think we get twitchy because our only models for anger and wrath are human models. And we think of people flying off the handle and you know, saying things that they regret and needing to kind of unwind and take steps back and make things right. And God's anger is not like that. One, one of the best descriptions I've found is uh, from a theologian that wrote this, there's nothing unprincipled, unpredictable, or uncontrolled about God's anger. It is aroused by evil alone. It's not flippant. You know, God is angry at evil. And friends, that is a very good thing. Let me tell you why. Because if If evil did not anger God, then every injustice in the world 
would simply dissolve in divine indifference. Ultimately, of no concern to anyone except the person who was so profoundly wronged. I mean, living in a world where the God of the universe does not distinguish between evil and good is, is unimaginable. Well, maybe, actually, maybe the Christian can't imagine that. That would be hell, actually. I mean, God is angry at evil, and that's a good thing. Evil makes God mad. And the problem of sin that Paul spent two chapters drilling unto us is that we've all done evil. There's a big problem. And it's not a a kind of medium-sized problem. It is a big problem. God loves people. And God is just and will never compromise with evil because he loves us too much to compromise with evil. Thus, the only way to satisfy God's justice by propitiating his wrath would be for God himself to redeem us, to buy us back at a price commensurate with our evil according to the covenant by which we live in relationship with God. The blood covenant, remember? cut with Abram who would become Abraham. Remember they sliced the animals in two. They, they bled them out into a pool of blood, sliced the animals in two, half on this side, half on that side. And in the ancient world, both parties to the covenant would walk through and get their feet bloody. And as they did that, they were in essence saying, may it be to me like these animals if I don't keep my end of the covenant. We've done evil. We haven't kept our end of the covenant. We live in covenant. We have said, may it be to us like these animals if we don't keep our end of the deal. Yet in all of God's goodness, he sent Jesus to keep our end of the deal for us. That's what communion's about. I hope you know that body and blood given for us a propitiation, appeasing God's anger, purchasing us back for God so that God can set us free. That commentator was right. Most important single paragraph ever written. It's the gospel. According to Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. I mean, breathe it in. This is good news. This is a new day. I mean, from the bottom of that narrow gorge to this, God's son died our death. God's son bore the judgment due us. God's grace satisfied God's wrath. God purchased us for the purpose of setting us free. God, by grace and through faith in this satisfactory spiritual buyback plan, confers upon us a new legal standing and identity. Righteous perfectly unbroken, in no need of repair, just as God is perfectly unbroken and in no need of repair. You're a child of God. Not kind of. That is who you are in Christ, and no one ever can take that away. Amazing love. God has mercy on the undeserving, and there is no work for us to do. Nothing. 
to contribute to this effort at all. All we do is receive this by faith as the gift that it is. It's clear that I like John Stott, another great Stott line. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Don't make faith a work. We never believe enough to please God. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Then and now. Then is gone. Now is here. I mean, the time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Jesus inaugurated a new day and it came to us in a new way. A new way, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Uh, Meaning, apart from any human contribution or effort. This is what makes Christianity distinct from really every other spiritual belief, be it a religion, a philosophy, an idea, whatever. I mean, theologians have, have used the idea of ascent and descent to illustrate this point. One went so far as to say that Ultimately, as we consider some kind of religion or spiritual philosophy, the decisive question is the direction of movement. Meaning, is it suggesting that human beings should work their way up toward God? Which basically is every spiritual belief other than Judaism and Christianity. Including our modern self-help stuff. We're ascending, right? the direction of movement is us up to God or is the direction of movement God down to us? If you've been around fifth for any time, you've heard me use the the mountain example. That's just simply this example. Religion, spiritual philosophies of many different stripes tell us that we should kind of endeavor, strive spiritually, find the trailhead, whatever trailhead we like, they all lead up the mountain and we're working our way up the mountain and this is life's journey. It's arduous, it's hard, but the reward is, is worth it because we'll arrive in the end. We can make it to the top. We'll ascend the height and make our way to God. That thought creeps in to our thinking in a million different ways. Beware of it. See, that's not what Christianity says. The gospel says that there's no way to reach God on our own. We can't even reach the trailhead because we're still pinned in the gorge under that 800-pound boulder. We can't even move. I mean, hopelessly stuck. And beyond all imagining, the God at the top of the mountain came down to us at that first Christmas long ago, for that's what Christmas is about. And even more than that, that same God demonstrated his willingness to give us a brand new start to make us perfectly unbroken like he is by buying us back through what Jesus did on the cross. I mean, pinch yourself. Don't just listen to this and think, I'm hearing what I already know. The claim is that this is real and true 
and that it applies to each of us right here, right now. Our tendency, I think, if as a congregation we have a weak spot, it's probably the self-help thing more than another religion. Jordan and I were talking about this this week. We're, we're pretty capable people. You know, we're gifted. Many have had the blessing of some level of higher education. And our, our temptation, I think, is to think that we can, we can work harder. We can organize better. We can save more. We can figure out what we need, learn what we need to to get by. We can can solve any problem, really. We we can figure it out. I mean, beware. Are you trying to climb the mountain? Those are all beliefs, spiritual beliefs, about what's really going on in this world and in your life and mine. But Jesus showed us not just a new day, but an entirely new way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's by grace, through faith. And by the way, even the faith is a gift. Like we don't even do that on our own. This is amazing. People saved, transformed into the people they were always meant to be by grace and through faith in Jesus. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So what are we to do? Uh, First, enter life in this new day. Then, live life in the new day. Enter life in the new day, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are no better or no worse than anybody else. We're all in this messed up boat of brokenness. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. Justified by grace as a gift through the buyback, the redemption that was in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. As, as one who does this, like preaches, I'm probably way too hard on myself uh, in being concerned about being manipulative. Somehow like twisting spiritual arms, trying to, you know, that kind of, I've just seen so many bad examples of that in preaching. And at the same time, I, I don't think any of us can get away from the reality that in the Bible it's pretty clear. God sent Jesus to invite us to faith. It's right there. God's presenting a gift. He wants us to have it. We don't have to do anything to get it except stop fighting him. 
stop fighting against it. So if you're, if you're in this place in your heart, kind of no matter how long you've been in a, in a church setting, grew up in it, been around a couple years or whatever, I mean, if, if, if you're not settled on this, don't, don't wait anymore. And if you feel like there's a wrestling match going on inside with these ideas about Jesus and, and the gospel, just Stop. I, I really reached a point in my own journey where I feel like I had to do this. Like for that internal spiritual wrestling match, I had to kind of go limp. Just let God win. Right, like stop fighting. I invite you to that. You don't have to be afraid. You're not going to get hurt. There's something much better when you quit fighting. Enter life in the new day. Receive Christ, meaning place your trust. Make a willful decision to trust that God gives us new legal standing in Jesus through this buyback plan that that happened on the cross and and it, it, it satisfies anything that might be against us and we receive it by faith. And then live life in the new day. If you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, you know this. We receive this gift of God's righteousness and we instantaneously enter a life of tension. Don't be deceived by the tension. It does not mean that you're not really justified. It does not mean that you don't have perfectly unbroken status in God's eyes legally. You do. But you and I both know that we don't behave that way. Morally, ethically, we're still becoming the people we've been declared to be. And that is the Christian life. I mean, the freedom fight of becoming who we really are. The invitation to enter the promised land, not just to stand outside and look at it, but by faith and through all the fear to step into it and live there. This is the process of sanctification, the process of biblical belief, you know, aligning our lives to the change in thinking, the repentance that has come to us by grace and through faith in Jesus. Would you close your eyes for a moment? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Turn to Jesus. Whatever that looks like in, for you in your, in your mind's eye, turn toward God. Stop resisting. Receive this gift. It's for you. And God wants you to have it. Lord, we bless you for the depth of your goodness demonstrated by the cross. Thank you that this is real. Fill us with faith. Increase our faith, God. 
that we might not only trust you, that we might not only receive what grace offers, but that we might have all we need, the courage, the endurance, the provision to follow you in this life and to become more fully the people you made us to be, the people whom you've declared us to be. God, thank you for Jesus. We love you and we pray in his name. Amen.